My intent, is you're, if you're looking at the insert in your worship folder, had been at least at the outset of this series that this morning I would talk about both abortion and euthanasia. But I don't have enough time. So I've decided that I'm going to zero in on abortion. You see, of all the weighty issues, and these are weighty issues that we are discussing in this series, abortion poses the greatest danger to the greatest number of people on a daily basis. In addition to this talk about abortion and the underlying issues is to talk about euthanasia because they both stem from the same problem, the oppression of the vulnerable because of a denial of the dignity of humanity made in the image of God. So today with this subject, I want to do three things. I want to look at what the Bible says. I want to look at a couple implications. And then I want to talk about what it means for us, how we engage, uh, what we can do. But I want to begin by uh, going to this debate that's taken place in our culture. In your uh, insert, there is a book, a, a really good book, one of the best books on this subject, The Case for Life. The author is Scott Klusendorf. Scott travels around the country, debates abortion advocates, uh, and he does a lot of that on college campuses. A couple of years ago, uh, before about a thousand students, he was debating a woman, a woman that was the former president of the ACLU. And she was arguing uh, for the woman's reproductive rights to do uh, with what was growing inside her anything she wanted. And I want to show you how Scott Klusendorf responded to that. Let's put this up uh, behind us. He writes, or he says, I should say, men and women, I completely agree with everything Nadine has just said. She's right that abortion is personal. It's a private matter that should not be restricted in any way. She's right that we shouldn't interfere with personal choices. She's right that pro-lifers should stay out of this decision. Yes, I agree completely if. If what? If the unborn are not human beings. And if Nadine can demonstrate that the unborn are not members of the human family, I will concede. Contrary to what some may think, the issue that divides Nadine and me is not that she is pro-choice and I am anti-choice. I am vigorously pro-choice when it comes down to women choosing a number of moral goods. I support a woman's right to choose her own health care, her own school, her own husband, job, religion, and to choose her own career to name a few. But some choices are wrong. Like killing innocent human beings simply because they are in the way and cannot defend themselves. No, we shouldn't be allowed to choose that. So again, the issue that separates Nadine and me is not that she is pro-choice and I am anti-choice. The issue that divides us is just one question. What is the unborn? Let me be clear. If the unborn is a human being, killing him or her to benefit others is a serious moral wrong. It treats the distinct human being with his or her own inherent moral worth as nothing more than a disposable instrument. Conversely, if the unborn are not human, killing them through elective abortion requires no more justification than having your tooth pulled. That's the debate going on today. So let's start with the Bible. 
And what I want to do is look at two foundational truths. Remember that, two of them. And here's the first. The first is human life begins at conception. Now, I want everybody in here to grab a Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. There's Bibles around you. If you didn't bring a Bible, or if you can't turn on your Bible, man, grab a Bible in front of you. I want you to look at what this ancient book has to say about this critical issue. I'll help you find a couple of the passages we're going to look at. And let's go back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 verses, verses 26 and 27. where we read, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, over the last 25 years, uh, we have owned two dogs, two labs, one chocolate, one yellow, Coco, and Cabo. They were beautiful, strong, friendly dogs. That's the nature of, uh, of labs. Uh, Coco, the chocolate lab, was really obedient and really smart. She never ran away, she never ate my books, she never ate any of my Bibles. Cabo, the yellow lab, not so much. She always ran away. She ate some of my antique books and she ate a couple of my Bibles. But they were great dogs. Eight years ago, uh, following the death of our first spouses, Rhonda and I remarried. And we moved into a new house, a house that was new for us. And with that house, we inherited this little bitty koi pond. Now, I didn't know a koi from a moose before moving into this house. Uh, but we started to put some fish in, and I want to tell you, over the years, man, we've grown to love our koi and our goldfish and our orfs and these crazy, lazy frogs that appear every year. And some of these koi are just beautiful. But hear me, no fish, no dog, no mammal has been made in the image of God. Now animals in different ways can point to God, but they are not on a par uh, with uh, people. Only mankind, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, have been made in the image of God. Notice that the word image occurs three different times, and that synonym likeness occurs once. So this passage teaches us what's called the Imago Dei. The image of God, man made in the image of God, unlike all of the rest of creation. Now, what does that mean, to be made in the image of God? means in some ways, we as humans have been made like God and designed to represent God. Or as John Calvin once said, uh, to mirror the invisible attributes of God to the entire world. 
Now, there's spiritual, there's moral, there's intellectual, there's relational, there's creative aspects of this Imago Dei being made in the image of God. And here in our, our two verses in Genesis chapter 1, the emphasis on our human capacity to rule over earth as God's representatives, to rule over the animals. Now, this doesn't mean that we can be cruel to animals. But animals are, are, are different. Animals aren't wrestling with should they watch The Walking Dead or The Voice. Uh, they're not worried about the threat of ISIS. They're not horrified by the killings in Oregon. We are not equal to dolphins and dogs, okay? That's the point of Genesis chapter 1. We are different because we are uniquely made in the image of God. And the question is, when does life begin? When does this Imago Dei begin? So I want you to turn ahead 500 pages in your Bible to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And verse 5, just one verse. Uh, this is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of confession. Uh, David is confessing his sin of adultery and murder. Adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And in verse 5, as he is um, outlining this and um, lining it out, he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now do you see this? David is, not sin, just, David is not merely sinful from birth. He is sinful from the moment of conception. David is saying he had a soul, a sinful soul he inherited from his sinful parents from the moment of conception. He, he, he's saying two things really. He had a soul from the moment of conception and he had a sinful soul from the moment of conception. It was sinful. So when does the soul take up residence in cellular matter? David says at conception. Life begins at conception. Now jump ahead about 50 pages to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to look at a couple beautiful verses here beginning in verse 13. David is also the author of Psalm 139. And David, speaking to God, praising God, worshiping God, says in verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, and your eyes saw my unformed body. Now, do you see, do you hear uh, the intimacy, the loving, caring, superintending, creating relationship God has to the fetus, to the unborn? It's breathtaking here. And did you note how David links his identity as an adult male to that fetus? That was me. 
in there, he says. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, I was formed in the secret place. Uh, I was woven together. I, me, I. Now Psalm 139 does not prove that life begins at conception like Psalm 51, 5. But it clearly claims life begins way before birth. Life with the soul. And the implication is conception. Now finally, we won't turn to it, but we come to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. And there's a word that's used for baby in three different passages. One in Luke 1, one in Luke 2, and again in Luke 18. In Luke chapter 1, it's used to describe the baby John the Baptist growing in his mother's womb. His mother Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 2, it's used to describe Jesus as a baby in utero, growing in the womb of his mother Mary. Then you fast forward to Luke chapter 18, and the exact same word that's used to describe the unborn is used to describe babies that have been born, that are brought to Jesus, who is now an adult, for healing. So therefore, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament teach us that there is no distinction between life inside and outside the womb, between the unborn and the born. Therefore, life begins at conception. And we should marvel and mourn. We should marvel uh, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we should mourn and we should resist a, 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 a abortion because it's always uh, the taking of a defenseless life made in the image of God. Uh, always. Now let me go a step further. I know we're talking about the Bible, but I want to digress for a moment and talk about science because you may not realize this, but on this point, the Bible and science agree. Bible and medicine agree. So I want to show you some words from a professor at Princeton, Princeton University, a man by the name of Robert George, who just happened to be part of the President's Council on Bioethics. Let's get these words on the screen and let me read them to you. Human embryos are not some other type of animal organism like a dog or a cat. Neither are they part of an organism like a heart, a kidney, or a skin cell. That's a big de deal in the debate today. Nor again are they disorganized aggregate, a mere clump of cells awaiting some magical transformation. Rather, a human embryo is a whole living member of the species Homo sapiens in the earliest stage of his or her natural development. Unless severely damaged or denied or deprived of a suitable environment, a human being in the embryonic stage will, by directing its own integral organic functioning, develop himself or herself to the next more mature developmental stage, i.e. the fetal stage. The embryonic, fetal, child, and adolescent stages are stages in the development of a determinate and enduring entity, a human being, 
who comes into existence as a single-celled organism, the zygote. Now, I had to spend some time this week talking to my wife, who's a doctor, about what in the world is a zygote. And develops, if all goes well, into adulthood many years later. But does this mean that the human embryo was a human person worthy of full moral respect? Must the early embryo never be used as a mere means for the benefit of others? like embryonic stem cell research because it is a human being? The answer is yes. Yes. Yet worldwide, 42 million abortions occur a year. 115,000 a day. In the United States, it's 1.2 to 1.3 million a year, 3,500 a day. 82% of all abortions are done by suction or vacuum. Uh, Sucking the baby body apart. Sucking body parts, vacuuming body parts into a jar. Tearing the baby apart. Now, now calling abortion the withdrawal of support is like suffocating somebody with a pillow and calling that the withdrawing of oxygen. You cannot overreact to this problem. This is the greatest tragedy in the history of the world. Amen. Let me go on. Because the Bible makes a second point, and I've got to move immediately to this point, and I want each and every one of you to hear me in this, and the point is this. There is no sin, no sin that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so let's turn to the New Testament now. I want you to turn to a passage we looked at two weeks ago when I talked about the subject of homosexuality. We're having a lot of fun these weeks, aren't we? So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's page 1,142 in the Bibles around you. 1,146 actually. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. By the time we get done with this series, I'm going to so love this passage. It's just so wonderful for what we're talking about. Paul says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. It's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the church 
at Corinth was not made up of people raised in the Bible Belt. They didn't go to Awana as kids. They didn't go to Moody and Taylor and Wheaton. They were all, every single one of them, first-generation Christians. And look what they came out of. Look at the verses. They came out of sexual immorality, prostitution, alcoholism, homosexuality. And before they came to Christ, they had been dirty. They had been vulgar. They had been mean. They had been hopeless. And that was when they were sober. But they heard. They heard the message. That there is forgiveness and righteousness and peace. There is significance and security and hope in Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he went to the cross and died on the cross in our place for our sins to rescue us from our brokenness and our tendency to self-destruction. And in that dark, pagan town of first century Corinth, God opened these people's hearts and they turned from their sin and God saved them and God transformed them. So Paul says, that's what some of you were. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Do you see, do you see the power of the gospel to change people's lives? Do you understand that there is no, there is no, there is not a single sin that outweighs the forgiveness God offers in the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ? There is no sin with more power than the cross. Not abortion, not ten abortions. Not pushing your girlfriend to get an abortion, not pushing ten different girlfriends to get abortions. As Psalm 103, verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, it's a long way, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. So far. In the United States today, one woman out of three to 3.5 has had an abortion. That's a whole lot of us. One out of three. 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't minimize the severity of abortion any more than it minimizes the severity of sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. Instead, it maximizes the life-giving reality of complete and total forgiveness in the work of Jesus Christ. You were washed. Washed. If you know Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Sisters, if you know Jesus Christ, you have forgiven. Brothers, if you know Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. 1 Corinthians 6 means God loves. It means God loves to take people who've been stuck in the darkest of places and turn them into his brightest lights. 
I mean, think Rahab, the prostitute in the Old Testament. Or the woman caught in adultery in the New Testament. And Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. Go. Be forgiven. Moses, the great Moses, was a murderer. David, the great David, was an adulterer and a murderer. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, used to kill Christians before he was washed. There is no power, there is no power greater than the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. I say this because, hear me, abortion doesn't define you. The cross of Jesus Christ defines you. How do you know that, Rob? Paul says you were washed. So if we're going to develop a, a, an in perspective of engagement as exiles, a minority culture within a majority culture, and because we're followers of Christ, we're often at odds with our culture, so we have to have an exilic or uh, perspective, exilic perspective, perspective of exiles that starts with understanding two foundational truths of the Bible. Uh, number one, life begins at conception, and number two, there is no sin, no sin, no sin, no sin that has more power than the cross. Now, what are the implications? Well, there's all sorts of implications, but I'm only going to mention two, and here's the first. No one has absolute power over their own body. Not even a woman who is pregnant. Do not let people pigeonhole you on this. We are all about, as followers of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, we are all uh, about uh, uh, a woman's right to choose. We are all pro-choice in, in the sense that we esteem women made in the image of God and, and love their, their right to choose. Man, I got, Ron and I have five daughters. That's way too many daughters. We have five of them. <laughs> we totally support the right to choose in hundreds of different ways. Oh, you made that decision? That's great. But if the fetus developing in a woman is another, another human, and it is, then regardless of whether that baby has disabilities or the pregnancy is unwanted or a hardship or the statistically low probability that it's a result of rape, that woman has no more right to an abortion than she does to murder her three-year-old. Because the three-year-old has become inconvenient. The question is, what is the fetus? So hear me, we support choice. But some choices are always wrong. I mean, try leaving here today and driving 100 miles an hour down North Avenue, shooting a couple guns out the window. <laughs> oh, we're pro-choice. Uh, let me go on. Implication number two. It's going to get worse. <laughs> um, 
Matt Chandler, Pastor Matt Chandler uh, points this out. Others do, but it's been helpful to me. Let me say it this way. The, the abortion debate in our culture has gone from the sane to the insane. And you need to know that. You need to know that. You see, prior to 1973 and the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision to legalize abortion on demand, we did not have medical technology. We did not have 3D sonograms where we could watch babies developing in utero. But what we know now as a result of this technology is that by three weeks, the brain, the spinal cord, the heart, the development of those three critical parts of human life are underway. By three weeks, underway. By six weeks, fingers are forming. By eight weeks, uh, babies respond to sound and they recoil from pain. By eight weeks, eight weeks, all the organs are up and functioning. At eight weeks, the baby possesses 90% of the 4,500 body parts that make up an adult. Eight weeks. And it's in this period up to 13 weeks that 90% of all abortions take place. So today, what's driving the abortion industry isn't rational, uh, medical, philosophical, scientific argumentation. What's driving it are the dominant cultural values of individual freedom and personal fulfillment, convenience, and the exaltation of self. Now this has been building for decades. You could argue since the Enlightenment. And I could go back and I could show you some quotes from the 1970s that would make your blood curl. But I, I want to illustrate this by just one quote, a fairly recent quote by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams. And look what she says. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Not the Bible. Not the state. Every woman is a master of her fate. That's crazy. And we are moving from the sane to the insane. 
just like, forgive me, just like Nazi Germany all over again. Oh yeah, we believe this baby, these Jews are fully human. We just want to terminate them. No difference. Who has the right to decide this? The baby is not the woman's body. It has its own DNA, its own organs, it it has its own dreams. And with a little help, as early as 21 weeks, just a little over five months, that, that baby can live independently outside the mother's womb. When you, when you live in a culture that destroys the most vulnerable at the beginning of life and the most vulnerable at the end of the life, at the end of life because of convenience, look out for what's coming relative to the middle of life. We have moved from the sane to the insane. So, what are we to do? How do we engage? How do we respond? Number one, we've got to pray and pray. Pray that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. That we are no longer dealing with rational scientific medical arguments suggests that just perhaps one day Roe v. Wade will be overturned, but it suggests also something much darker, much sinister. The fact that we have abandoned rational medical scientific arguments indicates there's something dark and spiritual and sinister from the pit of hell at work, blinding us to destroy us. We've got to pray. In the United States, we protect animals, but not the unborn. So if I go out and kill a blue heron in my backyard that is feasting on my koi, which has happened, I haven't killed one. (laughs) I wanted to. Badly. If I did that, you know what? I'd be in trouble with the law. Do you know that? Laws in the state of Illinois about blue herons. But if one of our five daughters wanted to have an abortion, kill one of our grandchildren, in the eyes of the law, no big deal. That is cultural madness. So what do we do? It starts with prayer. God have mercy, God changes, God overturn Roe v. Wade. Second, I want you to join me in repenting of your indifference, your silence, your your, your busyness. And I want you to get involved in this issue. Uh, This week, I've had to repent 
30 years ago, I used to take the small group I was leading and we would regularly picket an abortion clinic. Today, three decades later, I'm really busy. And I'm not doing much. And I've grown indifferent. As Scott mentioned on the front end, uh, CareNet Pregnancy Services of DuPage has got a table out in the atrium. Man, go talk to him afterwards about a way you can get involved. Maybe it's uh, taking in an unwed uh, mother. Maybe it's you giving yourself to foster care or adoption like so many people here are, are doing. Chris is going to talk a little about this uh, next week. There's all sorts of different ways you can get involved. You can figure it out. Uh, but let me warn you, as exiles, we run the risk of being unclear and unloving. Don't be either. But I, I want you to understand, running around calling abortion murder doesn't fix the problem. Waving signs. Being exiles means we stand against culture, but we sacrifice for culture to seek the flourishing of the culture, even though the culture rejects us. I mean, who knows? Maybe down the road, abortion and demand is going to be overturned. Don't you want your kids, don't you want your grandkids to look back and say, man, my folks got it. They got that they were exiles. And God used them to be part of the process to overturn Roe v. Wade. Third, we need to be careful how we vote. I, I agree with other people that have said this. Now, please, don't misunderstand, and there's a lot of red flags going on with some of you. I'm not advocating a political party. And I uh, am fully aware of the problem of one-issue voting. But get off your high horse. Most of every single one of us, one, two, three, four-issue voters, right? Right? I am not suggesting for a minute that pro-life candidates are, are automatically the w most qualified. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is this issue is so weighty, it's so urgent, it should seriously influence how we vote. 56 million abortions? You know, if someone came along as a candidate and said, you know, my, my, my position is this, man, I, my position is I want to throw open the borders and I want to welcome ISIS terrorists because they can help us get rid of 56 million Christians. You would be a one-issue voter. A Christianity that doesn't stand 
for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, doesn't have anything to say. Let's be clear. But because we are forgiving, let's be loving. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you, and we want to pray for our country, for the countries around the world, and we want to ask, God, that you would stop this holocaust, that you would overturn the insanity of these decisions, and you would show us as Christ followers how we can be difference makers, how we can be a part of our culture flourishing, not dying. And we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us that grace. And we pray in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.